local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live on a Thursday. Father James Gross joined by Father Jason Leffer. Priests of the Diocese of Fargo here in our uh, studios in the near Southside Historic District of beautiful downtown Grand Forks, which is uh, currently buried as much of our listening area is with a significant amount of snow. I'm going to have to ask some friends of mine down in the Gillette area what kind of winter they've been having because this time of year they typically make us very jealous because of their relatively balmy conditions. You know, it's amazing though, like... I'm a big solar guy following the sun and the moon and the stars, all this kind of stuff. Or but I used to be down in Lidgewood, southern border, North Dakota. Right. And I'm up in the northern border. Mm-hmm. There, You literally have four more weeks of better weather in Lidgewood than in, say, Cavalier. Yeah. Because two weeks in the spring, two weeks in the fall of mm-hmm. nicer weather. It's amazing. I, I, I tell people, you know, this part of the state, it's like Devil's Lake, Grand Forks, and Langdon form a Bermuda Triangle of a winter climate, you know, if you're anywhere nearer Munich around those is points. The, is the cold spot, yeah. <laughs> Munich or St. John, yeah, they, yeah, they often, yeah. I think, uh, set some of those perhaps records, things like that. Well, let's dive into our next uh, interview and our next topic about um, how to apply our belief in Christ and our beliefs in the gospel um, with regard to social teachings, particularly regarding the sanctity of human life. And to do that, we have an eminently qualified guest who is joining us in our Fargo studios, uh, Dr. Christopher DeCock. Uh, Doctor, welcome to Real Presence Live. Thank you for having me on the radio. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an introduction to you and, and how it is that you um, have taken up an interest in uh, the area of bioethics? Sure. So, by trade, I'm a child neurologist. And um, I was asked to be the physician chair for our bioethics committee, and I told them that I didn't have enough gray hair. Um, and so I figured I needed to get a little bit more education. Now, that said, I've been teaching bioethics to the medical students for, you know, some time. And um, I'm recently going to be finishing a master's program at University of Mary in bioethics. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. Um, but our topic today is going to be related to the fact of the Revision for the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And so, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. A buddy of mine was at book club, and he's a commissioner for the Uniform Law Commission. And he asked me, he said, hey, Chris, what do you know about brain death? And so I started to tell him what I knew. And then I found out the more that I read, the more I didn't know. Uh Aha. Well, go ahead and uh, expand on that in terms of, I I think a lot of us who were familiar with various, um, let's say, uh, crime procedurals and dramas, will will look at those things as from the law's perspective in terms of, uh, you know, brain death and and people's culpability, you know, in the medical community. But let's say that you have, you know, a relative or a loved one who finds themselves, you know, in in that situation. Uh, Go ahead and orient us a little bit to what to what it is that we're talking about here. Okay. So what I'm referring to as brain death is actually what is referred to as whole brain death. So this is in line with the Catholic Church, Church's teaching, specifically John Paul II specifically discussed that whole brain death was in line with the biophilosophical uh, concept of death. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about two deaths. I'm talking about one death, but two ways to determine that death has occurred. And one of those ways, of course, is whole brain death, 
and the other is cardiopulmonary death. Indeed. Okay. And, and of course, this would be very important when, I mean, what's coming to me is like, you know, organ donation, things like this. This is where it's absolutely critical that we have an understanding of true death, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, I like how you stated that, you know, we need to have certainty, you know. And, th and that's really where the problems have come up, is we, do no, we no longer have moral certitude that the criteria that we use for determining whole brain death actually determine whole brain death. Yeah, and, and uh, so, so uh, again, maybe bring us in, uh, our listeners who might not be tuned in to, what, like, you know, there might be people out there saying, well, what, what's the big deal? Isn't the person going to die anyway? Why, why is this important to know? Well, okay, so first of all, let's say someone's severely disabled, right? And they're on a ventilator, they're not going to come off the ventilator. As you know, taking someone off the ventilator is, you know, morally licit in many cases. And allowing, you know, natural course to occur is not problematic. However, when you're declaring someone dead who isn't actually dead and then harvesting their organs, in that harvesting of their organs, you're actually killing them. If you remember from The Princess Bride, Miracle Max said that there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And that's the problem. Yeah. And mostly dead, you, you go through their, or if they're all dead, you go through their pockets looking for loose change. You Absolutely. Know? Like the, okay, so um, actually, you know, humor aside on this, what, what, okay, from, from the, from the, Business end of things, why would, say, somebody who's interested in, in, in organ transplant, so why would they want, why would it be beneficial for them to change the definition of brain death? Why, why would they be pushing to change that? Or why, why is that, a, what, well, what well, are they after? Well, well let's, let, let's back off first and say what the problem is, okay? So we've said whole brain death is an acceptable method of death, right? So what is the problem? Well, originally when the Uniform Determination of Death Act was enacted in 1980, medicine and religion and logic were in sync. Our technology was not that good at helping to maintain these, you know, severely brain-injured patients. However, as technology has improved, there's been more and more cases of what's called chronic brain death. And, and this has really been a problem. And in fact, there was a President's uh, Council on Bioethics that met in 2008, um, and they published a white paper entitled Controversies in the Determination of Death. And interestingly enough, in that, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino, who was the chair of the President's Council on Bioethics, yeah, great in bioethics, said, look, in cases of uncertainty, we need to bend over backwards in favor of life. So if we're not certain, if we don't have moral certitude, we need to back off. And the problem that's arisen is that it's clear that the current medical criteria for the determination of death are inadequate. They don't actually test for whole brain death. They test for partial brain death. 
And the problem is when you test for partial brain death, not whole brain death, these patients are slightly alive. There's been cases of them going through pregnancy. Very classic case, Jahai McNath. She was declared brain dead by the criteria in California. Family did not accept that. They moved to New Jersey where there is an opt-out and she continued to live and go through puberty for four years. There's also documented cases of people gestating pregnancies, you know, during pregnancy, taking children to term, you know. And the problem is, it's really hard for me to believe that someone who's gestating a pregnancy is actually dead. And that's what the current clinical criteria are telling us. And unfortunately, the major medical organizations are saying that the part of the brain that tests for that, the hypothalamus, is unimportant. And you can gestate pregnancies and still be dead. So, so in it, uh, um, again, so we might be, listeners might be confused. Well, why, why would we want to push this? Why wouldn't we just want to be careful and make sure the person's dead? Like, well, for example, if I'm an well, organ we, trend right. donor, why, why would I be interested in, in changing the definition? Well, you wouldn't be interested in changing the definition because the definition of death is correct. Whole brain death is biophilosophically correct. It's in line with the Catholic Church's teaching. However, there is a push to change from whole brain death to, like I said, partial brain death. And that's something that we really can't allow. So if you'll allow, I can actually read the proposal, or actually first I'll read the original Uniform Determination of Death Act and then read the proposal. You bet. So, so the original Uniform Determination of Death Act says, an individual who sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, is dead. A determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. So that's fine. That's in line with Catholic Church teaching that respects the intrinsic human dignity of the, you know, the human person, and that's a statement with moral certitude. Now, right now, the clinical criteria are in violation of the law, because the law says that the whole brain has to be dead. And so the new proposal is an individual who has sustained either permanent cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or permanent coma, permanent cessation of spontaneous respiratory functions, and permanent loss of brainstem reflexes is dead. A determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. So they're purposely leaving out parts of the brain so that those chronic brain-dead patients are now legally dead as well as medically dead. And we're talking about the, um, uh, the, the, the um, advantages of, of certain people and wanting, um, wanting to expand this beyond where, um, you know, where, where the church says it, it is suitable. So um, one of the things that we're going to be looking at here um, after we come back from this break is we're going to try to you know, spread the net out a little bit uh, with your um, uh, expertise, doctor, in, in uh, bioethics and, and look at some of the ramifications in society, in culture, you know, if there's a, um, a cheapening, a, a disregard for, um, you know, the nature of life and uh, uh, what we need to be vigilant about. So we are in this conversation, a fascinating uh, bioethics conversation with Dr. Christopher DeCock, and we will resume at the other end of this break. You're listening to Real Presence Live. This is Real Presence 
Welcome back, everyone, to Real Presence Live. Father Jason Leffer joining me, Father James Gross, priest of the Diocese of Fargo, and we are joined in our Fargo studio by doc- Dr. Christopher DeCock, who, um, full disclosure, uh, was a, a parishioner and, and is a parishioner at St. Anthony of Padua in Fargo, where I had the distinct privilege of serving as a parochial vicar uh, a number of years ago and got to meet uh, him and his uh, lovely uh, family and extended family as well. So, um, it's uh, it's great to be able to reconnect with you here on the air uh, on the air, Doctor. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you are missed. Oh well, that's very kind of you. Well, it's been uh, yeah, it's been it'll be six years this summer since I uh, moved up to Grand Forks, but uh, I very much treasure treasure my time there. So we've been setting uh, the stage with regard to these um, various definitions and what uh, the church holds uh, holds to for uh, uh, brain death. Um, can you uh, kind of? bring the conversation forward here doctor in terms of um the important uh, the important decisions that are that are currently needing to be made sure and and don't worry i'll get to the the why later sure um but right off the bat so as i said whole brain death is biophilosophically sound it's in line with the catholic church's teaching um, and i had mentioned the original uniform determination of death act from 1980 To be clear, that act has been enacted by all 50 states to one degree or another, and it was supported by the American Medical Association as well as the American Bar Association at that time. And the reason it had such, you know, profound impact is that medicine and reality were in sync. Like I said, in the past, you know, before our advances in medical technology, when the brain was felt to be dead by the criteria that we have now, the body quickly disintegrated. And so that we knew that the brain was vital to life. It was vital to integrating life. And when the brain died, the whole brain died, disintegration would occur. And it was these cases of chronic brain death that started coming about that really, you know, questioned, you know, the medical criteria Now, again, the original Uniform Determination of Death Act and the notion of whole brain death is sound, but the current clinical criteria have not kept up with technology. Now, some people will say, well, since you have these chronic brain dead people, uh, whole brain death must not exist. We must have just made it up. In fact, that's one of the arguments for the changing of the definition of death But that's not true, because we haven't actually been testing for whole brain death. So we can't say that whole brain death doesn't exist, and that when someone's whole brain dies, they do not disintegrate, because no one's actually testing for whole brain death. So what's going on now, and the reason why I asked if I could come on the air, is this new proposal. And I read the new proposal prior to the break. This is going to be proposed to the Uniform Law Commission's annual meeting in Hawaii with all the, all the commissioners at large. Now, the reason I know this is I'm actually an observer for the drafting committee for the revision of the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And we've gotten some good changes you know, brought about, like an opt-in and stuff like that. Uh, unfortunately, there are bad things that go along with it. Now, the importance of this change is that the original Uniform Determination of Death Act is based on an objective reality of death. 
And if we change to a partial brain death, some people call it the neurorespiratory criteria, some people call it a higher brain criteria. Be that as it may, it is a subjective definition of death. And it's basically a definition of death that committees and medical organizations think is appropriate. Now, both you and I know that there's supposed to be two absolutes in life, death and taxes. Unfortunately, if this proposal goes through, the only thing we can rely on is taxes. Heaven help us all. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like I said, medicine is not in, law, in line with the law. And so this proposal is seeking to change the law, change the definition of death to meet the current medical practice. And it's got a lot of support. And remember, with this change, we already don't have reasonable certainty. We do not have moral certainty. And so rather than being more certain, they want to gerrymander the definition to meet the inadequate clinical criteria. So that would be like me as a neurologist saying, hey, I've got this test for multiple sclerosis. Now, it's not a very good test, and um, rather than, so if it's inadequate in doing its job, rather than improving the specificity and sensitivity of the test, I'm actually going to just change the definition of multiple sclerosis to make my test work. That's completely asinine and wrong-headed. And, and that's what's being pushed. Now, like I said before, you're either dead or you're alive. If you're mostly dead, you're slightly alive. And so we have to be abundantly clear of what's going on, that people are trying to change this definition. Now, you guys had hinted you know, that, you know, could this have something to do with organ donation? Now, I want to be clear about organ donation. If your whole brain is actually dead, there's nothing wrong with donating your organs. Mm -hmm. John Paul II said that organ donation is a good thing. It is a gift. But if you're not actually dead, when they harvest your organs, they kill you. Right. Now, there's a big difference between allowing someone to die and killing them. And let's be clear, we've, you talked about this in the last hour, about the intrinsic human dignity of the human person. If we're taking these vulnerable patients and boiling them down to what we can get out of them, then we've gone a drastic step in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Um, now, I'm just curious, uh, maybe this is um, uh, looking a little bit uh, uh, too far ahead, but um, uh, what we're talking about here primarily is with regard to uh, the considerations in the medical community. Uh, when it comes to, let's say, state legislatures and or, you know, like uh, action that Congress may be taking, is there anything that um, you folks in the bioethics world are, are asking people to kind of concentrate on? Like, what would the what would the consequences be in terms of what, um, uh, you know, elected representatives? Representatives would be pressured mm -hmm. to do, or you know, well, might okay. Want to so do. let me tell you about how this whole process works, because that'll clarify things a bunch. Right. So the Uniform Law Commission does not make laws. What they do is they come up with model laws that they think could be enacted uniformity or uniformly across all the states. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening 
is that they're seeking to change a law that's been enacted in all the states. So they're revising it. And this summer, in July, they're going to bring it to the committee at large to see, hey, can we go ahead with this? Now, we've still got another year to work through this problem. Now, I want to kill this now. I don't want this to be approved by the committee at large, by the majority of the commissioners for the Uniform Law Commission, and have it keep going. Now, God forbid, if we're unsuccessful, if people are not aware, if people are not talking to their commissioners, talking to their lawmakers, saying, no, we don't need to do this, then it could potentially be, you know, enacted by, you know, approved by the Uniform Law Commission, and then it would be presented to all the states, and the states could either accept or deny it. And so even if it gets to that point, then we're going to have to deal with that. And, and I hope that in North Dakota we'd have enough common sense to not allow doctors and lawyers to subjectively determine when someone is dead. But again, the goal is to kill it now. We kill it now. We force them to accept the appropriate definition of death, of brain death, which is whole brain death, and we don't allow it to get to the next state. So the biggest thing is people need to know that this is going on. I mean, no one's heard of this. You know, right. people think I'm crazy. They're like, no, that can't actually be happening. No, it actually is happening. And unfortunately, I have firsthand experience because I was in Washington, D.C. for the last meeting and Tucson, the meeting before. I've been intimately involved with this process. Now, what can we do? Well, we can go, first of all, with every state has commissioners. We talk to our commissioners. We talk to our lawmakers. We talk to our neighbors. We let them know that this is happening. We let them know that there is a serious human rights issue trying to be swept under the rug, you know, for whatever reasons. And we'll talk about those reasons, of course, after the break. But, you know, awareness is the number one thing. And, you know, we're partnering with many organizations such as the USCCB, the Catholic Medical Association, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, trying to get, you know, get the, get the soil ready, right? We need to get people aware. Because guess what? If we're not aware that this is happening, then it's going to happen and we're not even going to know it. And I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, people of goodwill, uh, Catholics included, who uh, feel as though so often we are reactive that we're just trying to catch up to things, whereas uh, this gives us an opportunity to be proactive um, in prayer and in advocacy and in, in conversations uh, with people. So mm -hmm. um, uh, we're going to have to wrap things up in just a moment here uh, because of our schedule, but uh, any, um, just a any final kind of parting words that you want to offer to us here, Doc, before uh, we finish the segment? Oh, you're only giving me a half hour? Unfortunately, yes. Oh, yeah. You didn't tell me that. I got an hour worth of answers for you. <laughs> so, okay, so let's be clear. So why are people doing this? Well, I don't know why. But to me, it's because people have forgotten that the body matters. There's this dualist understanding that the brain is the only thing that matters, and that if if you're never going to wake up again, you don't matter. But I would like to leave you with a riddle that uh, Abraham Lincoln was fond of. And it goes like this. If you call a dog's tail a leg, 
how many legs does a dog have? Well, a lot of people will reflectively say, well, they got five legs. No, they have four. They have four legs and a tail. And so if people are legally telling us that people are dead who are not dead, that doesn't change objective reality. Medicine must be based in objective reality. Otherwise, I mean, what are we basing our clinical decisions on? And to me, it's shocking how people don't care about these very vulnerable patients. Right. You know, it's inconceivable why we would want to be less certain about whether or not someone is dead before we harvest their organs. And to be clear, with some residual hypothalamic function, you can feel what's happening as they're removing your organs. So this is a human rights issue. We need to know about it, and we need to act. Very good. Christopher, uh, Dr. Christopher DeCock, thank you so much for taking time to enlighten us on these important topics, and uh, uh, blessings to you and your work. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about a great uh, retreat opportunity happening for many of us in our listening area. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Welcome back, everyone, to Real Presence Live. Father James Gross, joined by Father Jason Leffer, priest of the Diocese of Fargo, coming to you on a Thursday. Uh, as we were mentioning in the Straight Talk segment, a lot of wonderful um, observances and feast days coming up, even though we're in the middle of Lent. But uh, a lot of people also are remarking about this time of year as a basketball palooza. If you've been jonesing for basketball, you're going to get your fill uh, with uh, uh, March Madness, the men's and women's tournaments, uh, as well as uh, kind of the crown jewel of the uh, state Class B boys tournament for North Dakota, which kicks off today. And um, it's almost the end of an era because very shortly there will be an expansion into three classes for basketball, which is a big deal here in North Dakota. It's, people have a lot of strong opinions. Those of the smallest towns are rejoicing because of the separation out of many of these um, usual suspects with larger enrollments, etc., whereas other you know, think it's not necessarily going to improve, you know, the experience of uh, basketball and championships. There are a couple of teams in the state Class B boys that are making their first appearance in many years. Uh, Medina, Pingree Buchanan is one of those from my uh, home region. And also uh, Warwick on the uh, Spirit Lake uh, Reservation is going to be in the tournament. So um, it, it's always fun to have those uh, underdogs to kind of root for and see how they do. So now, not to... But it, it might be an end of an era, but pre-era was back in the day, there actually was a Class C. Yes, there was. Because Leffer, North Dakota, the Leffer Leopards. They were the Leopards, okay. 1976 were the, the state champs there. My uncle was on the team and all that. I, I just wow. grew up as a little kid seeing the, the picture in the in the gym in, the, in whatever, and they had the big championship thing up on the, the wall or whatever. And, but, I, you know, I don't know. Did they get together in a garage somewhere and play the game? I'm not sure. We were pretty tiny. We were pretty tiny. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There is some fascinating history, and I'm sure, you know, like with regard to lots of different sports and states and the Dakotas and Minnesota and, and uh, Wisconsin, for that matter, for our folks listening out of the Twin Ports area. The, this really is an important time of the year for our folks in the, lo- you know, the rural areas and all that. It is, it's, they celebrate, rejoice. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to yeah, take la- Last person leaving town, turn the lights out, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. So... We're going to start up a conversation here with a gentleman who is joining us to tell us about some retreat opportunities that will be happening in a part of our listing area. Tony Kaiser, welcome to Real Presence Live. 
good morning and thank you for for bringing me on absolutely it's our pleasure um introduce us uh, to yourself and uh um and, and let us know a little bit about you if you could okay well tony kaiser uh, i was born and raised in alexandria south dakota on a dairy farm i'm the fifth oldest of 15 and i'm a uh, Married, five kids, and uh, very involved in my local parish, which is the Holy Spirit Parish here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Very good. And uh, tell us a little bit about the the uh, program of uh, the retreat, Brothers in Christ, I believe, is is what yep. it's uh, titled. Yep. Well, and, and Brothers in Christ is actually a group we formed a little over a year ago. And how the, how the group, Brothers in Christ, came together, um, our new bishop, Bishop Groot, which came from Minnesota, came to our diocese in the middle of COVID. And so there was little contact with the outside world then. So uh, our parish, Holy Spirit Parish in Sioux Falls, we have a men's group that's formally met for probably 15-plus years. With We have 60, 60, 65 guys every Friday morning, 6 o'clock a.m. to show up. And so it's would be a great opportunity to invite the bishop in after things kind of opened up to introduce himself to our group. And we want to make it a big deal, so we kind of opened up our, our men's group to the sisters in around Sioux Falls parishes. So we connected 14 parishes, and we had 250 guys show up at 6 o'clock a.m. on a Thursday morning to hear the bishop for the first time. So that's kind of where the idea of Brothers of Christ came into play. And we have now formally reached out to 37 parishes in the Sioux Falls Diocese to come together as a group. And twice a year, we're now, this is the second year now, we're hosting a retreat twice a year called Brothers in Christ. We have those 37 parishes connected with lead disciples in each parish to to uh, do the retreat. So um, well, Brothers in Christ is now a, 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 a formed organization to really encourage men's groups in local parishes foremost the therefore mm-hmm. also to come together twice a year for these retreats. That is outstanding. Um, so let's just go back to that uh, experience where you guys uh, invited the uh, bishop to join you. You said about 250 participants. Did you have any idea that it would be that large of a turnout? Well, here's kind of a little bit of the backstory. So we've had 60, 65 guys consistently. So we thought, this is the bishop, big deal. So I went to our core group and said, let's make it a big, let's call it a 100-man campaign just to kind of name it, right? So we call it right. the Heartman Campaign. And the more I thought about it, that's not, that's not big enough. So I just make it a, uh, you know, a tour man campaign, but reach outside of our parish to the, uh, this parish in and around Sioux Falls, 6 o'clock a.m. It's got to be locals, right? So, right, right. Uh, so, so again, that tour the guys showed up um, as a result of, of that emphasis to, to really promote uh, that, the bishop. Now, when you meet as a as a regular group, is there a, a format that you use? Are there um, uh, be, you know talks that you listen to, or yeah. um, what what kind of structure uh, does that does that have? Yeah, we're, we're using that man as you, right? And we've had over, over the years we've done different programs, but uh, that man as you is where we started. And that's back to where we're at now again too. Now that they're, they have content available that's been you know updated more recently. Right. So, yeah, that, that great program. That that man is you. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I know we had uh, the, um, the, the founder of it uh, with us as uh, priests in our presbyterate for the Diocese of Fargo to really introduce it. Gosh, I think that was probably uh, well over 10 years ago. And there are certain pockets that have been continually using their format, including here in Grand Forks, uh, just, you know, alternating from one place to another. So um, tell us about uh, kind of the, the structure of uh, the retreat, um, you know, like in terms of time frame and some of the things that participants can look forward to happening there? Well, I think that the, kind of our, our thought of having two mini-seminars a year is people are so busy. People want to grow in their faith, but they're so busy. So the idea, the idea of the mini-retreat is just a, it's a morning, so registration starts at 7.30. Um, we start at 8.30 sharp, goes till noon, and we have a, a piece of social afterwards. So the structure is you have a small group. I'm not sure you have a uh, guest speaker. So Chris Brewall, who's the head of discipleship formation in our diocese, he, yep, so he's our, our, our speaker. And he'll present uh, three talks. And, um, and, and the theme is, this is my body. So the theme is, this is my body, kind of in keeping in, in, with the theme of the National Eucharistic Revival. Right. So the theme is on the Eucharist. And I've heard Chris speak on that. He does an excellent, excellent job in that. So he'll, he'll present, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes, and we'll break into small groups to, uh, with some, some uh, set questions to, to, to discern. And, and, and that's really where the, the real meat in those kind of ret- retreats or uh, events is really the small groups. And um, kind of like, kind of on the theme of that man is you, the short presentation, the small group discussion afterwards. And what, um, I, I'm just kind of curious, like from a priest's perspective or a pastor's perspective, what kinds of things would you say, let's say, if you um, meet a gentleman who you think might uh, be interested in being a part of uh, uh, the, the work that Brothers in Christ is doing, you know, whether it be these uh, retreat events or other, other sorts of meetings, and, you know, they talk about an elevator pitch, like if you're standing in an elevator, you know, what would you say, you know, during the course of that time? What kinds of things would you um, uh, highlight in order to uh, persuade somebody to kind of take that first bold step and be a part of this program? Well, I guess in our parish, because we've been around for 15-plus years, um, you know, I, I kind of ask Holy Spirit to lead me to, to, to men. And here's what I find, Father, is that men are very open to, um, to grow in their faith. They need to be asked. And it's amazing, you ask somebody, first of all, I'd ask them, are you familiar with the men's group at Urban Air Parish? And uh, they may or may not. He said, well, we get together every Friday morning, 6 o'clock a.m., um, and this is a chance for us to grow in our faith. And so open the, open the conversation to, to the faith, faith conversation, uh, but, but here's the key. The key is once you open the, the conversation, you've got to personally invite them. And the key is you've got to personally invite them to meet them at the door. And then, and then, then, then be with them for that first session for sure. Um, then once they start coming to men's groups, I, I tell them I got to come three times just get the experience. And after that third time, the Holy Spirit's going to basically lead them to come back or not. Um, but but again, it's the invitation is the key, and then to actually meet them so they know that they're they, they know that you're counting them counting them being there. And to me, that that's the formula. First, you got to invite. Secondly, you got to actually meet them and actually be with them. 
for the first three weeks. And, and then there's a little buy-in on their part. Once there's buy-in, then they become part of it. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, we'll continue this uh, discussion about um, the this great program that has been blossoming, blossoming in the uh, Sioux Falls Diocese as we have Tony Kaiser with us. And we'll continue this conversation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Welcome back to Real Presence Live on a Thursday as we are in our final segment of the show. Boy, the two hours just tend to fly by, don't they, Father Lefter? Well, especially when we get together. We have so much fun. It's just great to be on air with you. And, and hopefully that comes through to the listeners that they, they enjoy the two hours with us as well. Yes, yes. The uh, the mirth and merriment that uh, arises from our time together here. And we are visiting with uh, Tony Kaiser, who is part of the uh, Brothers in Christ uh, group out of uh, Sioux Falls, uh, talking about some of the various activities that they have going on. And Father Leffer, I know you were going to ask about some of the structure, you know, kind yeah, of the sure. support structure of this so, group. So, so, Tony, how about, I mean, you obviously can't do this on your own. There's got to be a whole crew of men who are right. committed behind the scenes. And so can you tell us right. about just all the involvement and how that's come to be and, and the men sure. and their willingness to come forward? Right. Well, initially, you know, it's me being inspired to actually kind of reach out to uh, form the group. And it, it, it started with, it starts with a, uh, I call it a tag team. You have to basically pick your tag team. Tag stands for Together Achieving God. So I chose my tag team in my parish. I have three guys that are my tag team. And from that tag team, we, 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 we developed this year's, this year's system, if you want to call it that, but the, the organization. And it, it started with reaching out to the parishes to find a lead disciple. So we call it lead disciple. Each parish, we, we designated a lead disciple. And that was just basically trying to find somebody was going to be that lead disciple in the parish, and it's their job then to get their tag team, their three guys, two guys, three guys, to be on their, their support team inside the parish. So it's reaching out, find that lead disciple in those 37 parishes, and that individual then to find his tag team inside his parish to, to give him the support, and then to uh, come together twice a year for the for these mini-retreats. You, you know what it makes me think of is when... Um Father Gross, you I, you may have known him personally, Moses's father-in-law Jethro. Do you remember? Do you remember him? <laughs> anyway, so a very wise yeah, man. Yes, he was because Moses, we just read about him in our office of readings. Moses was overwhelmed and he was failing, and and the the wisdom of the elder came in and said, "Why are you sitting around oh. here while people have to stand around you all day?" And he and he got him this organized structure of groups of uh, what fifty? I just remember fifties and tens, fifties and tens, and, yeah. and leaders at different points or whatever. And, uh, you know, and so Tony, as you're describing that, I, I was thinking like, even as pastors, you know, like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be wise if we actually ordered our people in such a way to have a life-giving parish where our people were actually ordered in like 50 family units and then 10 units within those families and you had leaders in each one, you know, kind of like, like one of the things that's lacking nowadays is accountability, right? And we men, we need to be held accountable. We need to learn how right. to hold our brothers accountable. So here you are, Tony, you're... You're actually doing it. You're doing it. You're living. You're you're making it come to life. It's been great, and I think the, the thing you find, going back to men, overall, men men want to be men are, are are looking for, but they're not actually asking. They're just waiting to be asked, and once they are, uh, it's exciting to see it come alive. You know, and it's just something we've done more recently. Um, and, and, our, and the other thing, too, is, okay, so I think Holy Spirit Men's Group in South Florida is a well-known group that's been around for a long time, but 
what we didn't want this to be perceived as being a Holy Spirit parish thing. We want please really understand this is a Holy Spirit-led thing, not Holy Spirit parish. Trying to separate the Holy Spirit parish and the Holy Spirit-led. Um, but, but just real brief, uh, something exciting right now is that my, I have a son, Michael, who's 26 years old, and he's come to advance because I've asked him to, but we're lucky to come back. And, and we've been talking why that is, because we're going to need small groups. Uh, for example, last, last one we had the bishop at the last event, and Michael randomly formed these small groups. These are the group of guys probably average age 70. I kid you not. So older groups, sure. right. But he, he can't relate to them. So as, as we talk about our kids leaving the church, he's sitting there listening to it, right? So the point is... <laughs> It's hard to get young guys involved, but we've been here more in the last three or four weeks. We we invited young guys. Now we have their own small groups. So it was, it was never the content. It was a discussion afterwards. We have these two tables now. These young guys they're totally excited because they hear the content, but they actually actually sit down and talk in their as a peer group. Right, and, they relate and, to each and, other, and they're on fire. They're actually meeting every other week now for at a local pub for uh, 8 o'clock for a beer is a, is a Christian group, and we, we, we named the group the Young Bucks. Yeah, young great. Bucks, you got a name, right? Young Bucks? Yes. <laughs> the, the, uh, um, hey, can you give us some examples of, like, thinking of the men who are involved and how this has affected, what, what's the fruit of it in their life, maybe in their marriages, their families, yeah. their businesses, that kind like of thing? Like testimonials yeah, what, without what, getting too specific. Exactly. Or, what, what are some of the fruits that you've, you've witnessed? You know, I mean, you hear the wives talk about their husbands being better husbands and fathers as a result of uh, being part of men's groups. Uh, when I first joined men's group, my kids were still in my, under my roof, and but a lot of the guys there were, were um, empty nesters, and the, reg- the regrets they had not being involved in those, those kind of men's groups when they, had, when they had kids to raise their family. They think they would have been better fathers and better husbands having been part of that. Uh, we'll call it brotherhood. I mean... Men need men. Iron sharpens iron, Iron, right? Um, so mm-hmm. to come together and be able to actually have a, a reason to, to, you know, men, unlike women, we have a hard time talking about feelings, right? So it's, 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 it's to, to really have an opportunity to really share. And uh, it's, a, it's a cool thing. And, and, and men get so much out of that. But, but I always want to say people just need to be asked. The personal invite is the key. It's not public talks. Okay, it's not emails. It, it's a personal invitation always. So it's a, a lot like that road to Emmaus um, example of you know walking walking together with Christ, mm-hmm. relating to each other. Absolutely. So the next, uh, I, I pulled up the Holy Spirit Parish uh, Sioux Falls website. The uh, next event, the Brothers in Christ event, is going to be a week from this Saturday, correct, on the twenty fifth. Yeah. Okay. And uh, in terms of the geography, uh, Holy Spirit Parish is kind of in the southeast end of uh, the Sioux Falls Metro, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Okay. Um, And uh, just as we're kind of finishing up our our conversation here, um, I'd like to hear just a little bit more of a a first-person kind of reaction from you in terms of what some of the spiritual rewards are that you have in mind, uh, things that you've been experiencing um, as you've been involved and getting uh, even more so in uh, the Brothers in Christ uh, movement here. So I'm sorry, the question was more in terms of what, I'm sorry. But yeah, yeah, kind of a first person, uh, you know, like um, uh, what uh, personal benefits have you been finding from from your involvement? Sure. Yeah, 
Well, that's fine, you know. The, we all seek to be closer to Jesus, getting to know Jesus versus, versus knowing about Jesus, actually knowing Jesus. And that comes with, like anybody else, got to spend time with, with somebody to get to know them, right? So I, I just think, you know, the, giving people, men the opportunity to actually spend time with Jesus and, 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 and brotherhood, uh, it's, the fruits of that is just, it's incredible. And just to see the guys grow in their faith, wanting to grow in their faith and get more involved in their faith and their community, it's, uh, that's the real fruits. Fantastic. Now, if somebody in the area wants to attend, um, uh, what? How? How do they get signed up? What? Uh, what they? Sh- what should they know about um, sure. uh, costs and time frame and things like that? Sure. I just encourage them to go to like like you did. Go to the Holy Spirit website, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, that's the location, so GPS will get you there. Um, it's it's fifteen dollars at the door. You don't have to pre-register. Just just show up. Okay. Um, $15, that covers the cost. We have uh, a light breakfast and pizza afterwards, right? So that's the, that's the reason for the cost. Fantastic. 7.30, 7.30 is the registration. 8.30 starts 8.30 sharp, goes till noon. Sounds like a wonderful sounds like a wonderful thing. And, and uh, you mentioned that the goal is to have events like this twice a year. Is that where twice you're currently year, at? Yes. Yep, yep. Fantastic. Well, Brothers in Christ is the name of this group um, uh, out of the Sioux Falls area. And Tony Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us here on Real Presence Live. Blessings to you and and to your family. Very good. Happy Easter. Thank you. And uh, I I guess one other quick question. Um, With as many siblings, there must be an awful lot of nieces and nephews. Uh, uh, Are you able to keep up with all of the birthdays? No. Last (laughs) last I've heard, well, somebody's actually put the list on the the refrigerator, and it's a a page and a half. Yeah, um, (laughs) I think I have have 70-plus nieces and nephews, 102 if you go into the the second generation. So it's it's a bunch of us, yes. (laughs) Fantastic. What a blessing. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Tony. Thank you. All right. So let's uh, turn things over to Aaron and Command Central with a preview of our next show. On the next Real Presence Live, Tuesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central, your hosts will be Jack and Doreen Kennelly coming to you live from our Fargo studio. We will hear from Bernadine Seafelt and Fargo Shanley school students who will tell us about their upcoming drama production. We will also hear once again from Dr. Christopher Ducat who will inform us about bioethics and issues of life and death. All this and more is coming to you live on the next Real Presence Live, Tuesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central. Back to you, Fathers. Thank you very much, Aaron. So while we're on the topic of retreats, I wanted to just ask Father Leffer to share briefly about a a retreat series that he is uh, helping to organize to be held at Maryvale in the next few months. Sure. As you know, we've had this great gift from uh, the Presentation Sisters to the Diocese of Maryvale, and Bishop Fulda put out an invitation for we priests to start sponsoring some retreats for our parishes in the local area and so forth. And so um, I do have a background of spiritual direction and um, giving retreats and things. So I thought, hey, let's take advantage of this. So we, we've put together, um, it's, it's going to be a series. It's a, so every three months it's designed for a, a, a retreat uh, to come forward. For It's, it's a men's retreat uh, at this time. It might expand out later. But it, it looks at the four essential relationships, right? Okay. Son, son, son uh, brother, sibling friend, lover, spousal. So it's, it goes from, you know, basically the life of God gives to you, you receive it, and then you come to full maturity and, and give it out. So each, uh, each retreat is about uh, $200, which covers the cost of your stay 
and uh, the food. Now, the, the time frame of it, because you're also in your weekend uh, yep. duties, so... So it's May, it'll be Thursday, from Thursday afternoon to Saturday afternoon. Uh, Two-day two day shots, four times a year. You don't have to start at the beginning and come at any retreat. The first one is May 25th, 27th. And just go to maryvalend.org. It's M-A-R-Y-V-A-L-E-N-D.org. Or okay. you go to the, the Diocese of Fargo website... Uh, to, to go ahead and register. So there are going to be numerous uh, opportunities. I think our uh, brother priest, Father Sean Mulligan, is working with a group for uh, some women's uh, uh, retreats as well. And it is going to be a great thing, especially in the uh, years to come as the diocese is looking at particular renovation, um, you know, uh, converting certain areas of the facility over to make it even more um, hospitable for, for various groups. But uh, those within our diocese, especially not too far from the Valley city area need to remember that resource well we're coming to the end of our time so on behalf of uh, father jason leffer father james gross thanking all of you for listening for your support for your prayers uh, for this wonderful apostolate of real presence radio until next time blessings to you and to your families